Unless you have been hiding under a rock or have been out of touch with the news, then you'll know that earlier this week, uh, so many people were shocked at the death of George Floyd. And I felt like we needed to take some time to recognize this moment that has so captivated our nation. Now, if you don't know what is going on, George Floyd um, died earlier this week as three officers uh, leaned the full weight of their bodies into him. One officer leaning his his knee into his neck. And for eight minutes and 46 seconds, this man leaned his weight into his neck as George Floyd uh, pleaded to be able to breathe. About three minutes of that occurred while his body lied, laid uh, lifeless, I should say. Um, as, as, as he slowly expired, there's three more minutes in which he laid motionless, not talking, not breathing, not asking for anything, and his life expired from him. The paramedics arrived and there's no pulse to be detected and they were unable to revive his body at the hospital. And this is difficult for so many people to watch. Um, I am not an African-American, um, but I'm starting to understand more and more of some of the frustration that so many in the African-American community have felt. And I can sense some of the rage that is going on right now in our nation. What I didn't know about George Floyd when I first saw that video um, has come to light a little bit later in the week. For example, on Thursday, Christianity Today had an article that said George Floyd left a gospel legacy in Houston. He lived in the third ward for a good chunk of his life, and he was a well-known person in that area. He helped use his influence in the third ward to open the doors for churches and ministries to come in. And you can see George here pictured uh, at the baptism of one of his friends. He was a community leader, and he gave the green light for so many good ministries to come in and to work in a very, very tough neighborhood. We also learned this week that George had attended Texas A&M Kingsville for some years in the mid-90s. And so in one way, George was one of us, not just in the sense of being connected in some way to Texas A&M, not just in the sense that he was a follower of Jesus, but in the sense that he was a human being. In, in the wake of this video coming out of his death in Minneapolis, the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Frey, had a joint press conference with Minneapolis Police Department. This is what he said. It caught my attention. For five minutes, we watched while a white police officer pressed his knee into the neck of a black man. For five minutes, when you hear someone calling for help, you are supposed to help. This officer failed in the most basic human sense. What happened was simply awful. It was traumatic, and it serves as a clear reminder of just how far we have to go. For the better part of the night, I've been trying to find words to describe what happened. All I kept coming back to is this. This man should not have died. What we saw is horrible, completely and utterly messed up. This man's life matters. He matters. He was someone's son, someone's family member, someone's friend. He was a human being, and his life mattered. Whatever the investigation reveals, it does not change the simple truth. He should still be with us this morning. What caught my 
attention in what I thought was a very good statement by the Minneapolis mayor were these words that this officer failed in the most basic human sense. Embedded in that statement is a whole assumption of the way this world should work and the way things ought to be. And as I, as I listened to that and reflected on those words, I asked myself the question, what does it mean to succeed in the most basic human sense? I think for all of us, we know intuitively what it looks like in certain situations. We know that that police officer should have removed the weight of his body from George's neck. We know that he should have listened to his pleas for mercy to, to be able to breathe, but he didn't. And so what I want us to do this morning, my friends, is to think about what it means to succeed in the most basic human sense. And what does it mean to fail in the most basic human sense? And we're going to actually look at some words of Jesus that he spoke on the last evening that he spent with his disciples hours before he was crucified. And so we're going to entitle our study today, Jesus' New Way of Being Human. And so what I want to do is to invite you to join me as we eavesdrop in on this last conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. He has just washed his disciples' feet humbling himself, showing them a new way of being human. And so he wants to give them some of his most important words, his final instructions. And so this is what Jesus said. John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. Now, I want to pause right there. And I know it just, you know, it's almost like throwing on the brakes when we shouldn't be. But I want us to, to put ourselves in the position of the disciples and to understand how these words would have impacted them. Now, these men had spent three years with Jesus. They have gone all in with him. In their minds, they were convinced that he was the Messiah, that he would become the king of Israel, and that he would reign over all the nations of the world, establishing justice and righteousness. And so you've joined him on his long march to Jerusalem. In the back of your mind, in order for him to become king, means that Jesus must overthrow Rome. And so when Jesus comes to this point, when he says, a new commandment I give to you, I wonder if they didn't just lean in a little bit more. It's about to get real. Jesus is going to give us our marching orders right here. Everything is going to change from this moment forward. And so let's lean in with those disciples in that context of understanding and hear what Jesus says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. I can't be sure what the disciples were expecting Jesus to hear or to say, what they were expecting to hear, but I'm almost certain that this probably didn't uh, live up to their expectations. I mean, after all, Jesus talked about love all the time, and, and what's new about this commandment? I mean, the commandment to love goes back thousands of years to the time of, of Moses and leading his people out of Egypt and giving them the Ten Commandments, and embodied in that was the call to love. And in fact, the disciples were with Jesus one time when some of his um, adversaries, <laughs> the Pharisees and uh, the leaders of um, the Torah, the experts of the law, came to him and questioned him and said, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so Jesus knew that the command to love wasn't new. 
So maybe the disciples were thinking, what Jesus means is he's taking an old commandment and he's renewing it. He's just, he's just saying, yes, let's go forward in the way that we have always gone forward before. And if that's what their thinking was, then nothing would have prepared them for what Jesus said next. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, that's an interesting thing for Jesus to say. He's not just simply calling them to love and leaving it up for them to define what that might look like. He's actually calling them to love just like he did. And on one level, this is a very audacious statement from Jesus. He is saying, I love well. What God meant in those commandments of loving God and loving others, I embody that. And I'm calling you to love just as I have loved you. And so they would have heard it in one sense of Jesus' history of love. Now, he's been with these disciples for three years. He's invested in them like no one else has. He has been patient with them like no one else has. He has taught them about love. They have seen him love people and touch the untouchables and hang out with the misfits and the outcasts of society. They knew how Jesus loved. And he's calling them to love like that. But these words from Jesus, love just as I have loved you, would take on a new meaning in just a matter of a few days. You see, Jesus' future expression of love to them would be forever ingrained in their minds. Later that night, Jesus would be betrayed. He'd be arrested by the Roman soldiers. He would be carried away and brutally beaten. He would be nailed to a Roman cross. And three days later, he would rise again and teach them about what love looks like. So when Jesus said to them, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. He's, he's filling that definition of love with new meaning. Now, some of you may know that the Greek language has four different words for love. One word is the word storge. It's, it's a term of family affection. Another word for love is eros. It refers to romantic love. Another word is philia, which is a friendship or a brotherly kind of love. And Jesus doesn't use any of those words. He takes a rather obscure word and he uses it and says, I want you to love in an unconditional way. The Greek word that is used here is the word agape. And it's interesting, the legend J.I. Packer put it like this. He said, the Greek word agape for love seems to have been virtually a Christian invention, a new word for a new thing. In other words, Jesus is not just reissuing an old command. He's redefining it. Not just love like you might want to love, but love like I love you. An unconditional, sacrificial kind of love. That's what Jesus wants his disciples to embody. That's their new way of being human in this world. And in fact, just uh, another chapter or so later on that same evening in the Gospel of John, we hear Jesus reiterate what he just said. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. I mean, here Jesus is, in a sense, saying, this is my final wish. This is my dying desire, that you would love one another, that you would agape one another, as I have loved you. And the way that looks, there, there's no greater love than this. When someone loves in this way, 
they are willing to lay down their life for their friends. So according to Jesus, agape love is how he wants his disciples to display his new way of being human in this world. And then Jesus says this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean, this is almost astounding that Jesus banks his future movement on the ability of his followers to love one another. He didn't say, you know, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you have all your theology tight, if you read all the right books, if you give lots of money to the poor. Those, those, are, those are good things. But Jesus said, by this, displaying agape love for one another, this is how people are going to know that you belong to me, that you are my people. Listen to how a couple modern authors make this point. Leon Morris, in his commentary, said, this is the distinguishing mark of Christ's followers. Agape love, this is the distinguishing mark. N.T. Wright said, this was to be the badge that Christianity wears before the watching world. And J.C. Ryle said, it was to be the test of Christianity before the world. The ability of Jesus' followers to embody a new way of being human, to love one another and to love others, like Jesus loved, that was going to be the acid test of his new movement. The Apostle Peter, who was there that night hearing Jesus define this word, later would write to some Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor from persecution, and he gave them this instruction. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. He's saying you have new life given to you by the gift of God. And so love one another from a pure heart, but love one another earnestly. It's interesting, that word earnestly was used in Greek literature to describe a racehorse that was straining to reach the finish line. It's also used of Jesus on the night in which he was praying before he was crucified. And we're told in the Gospel of Luke that he, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. There was an intensity to this praying of Jesus. Likewise, we are to have an intensity when it comes to loving one another. Peter would repeat himself in that same letter. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In other words, no matter what you do, make sure you do this. Love one another earnestly. Agape one another. Keep on agaping one another earnestly. This is the way we embody a different way of being human in a world that is completely and utterly messed up. It's interesting, a couple uh, centuries later, century and a half later, Tertullian, who was an early church uh, theologian and, and writer, described how outsiders looked inside the community of Jesus' followers and they would often say how they love one another. I wonder if the world looks into a community of Jesus followers today and say that very same thing, how they love one another. They may not buy into all that we have to say. They may not think that what we desire is exactly lined up, but they say, look, these people love well. Look how they love one another. This is what Jesus desires. It's interesting, another one of his apostles, Paul, 
who initially was a persecutor of Jesus and his people. He was probably there on that day, hanging out with the other Pharisees who mocked Jesus as his life slowly expired from him on the cross. He would later become a Christian. And writing to Christians living in Corinth, he said these words, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul got it. He understood the importance of manifesting a new way of being human in this broken and messed up world. And it has everything to do with loving people the way that Jesus loved. So he says here, if I don't have agape, if I don't love like Jesus loved, I am nothing. How might we fill in that sentence? If I, what? But do not have love, I am nothing. If I climb that corporate ladder, and retire early, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I become popular and everyone knows my name, but if I don't have love, if I don't have agape, if I don't love like Jesus, I am nothing. So my friends, let me summarize our message this way. Followers of Jesus are nothing if not loving. Now, I know there are two ways that we typically use this construction in the English language. One way is to use a turn of phrase like this to highlight a prominent feature of someone. For example, we might say, Sally is nothing if not patient. Or Jeremy is nothing if not wise. We put it like that to highlight a phrase or our chief feature in someone's life. But we can also use this turn of phrase to, to highlight an essential feature without which that person is nothing. And I think that's the way we want to understand this here. Followers of Jesus are nothing if not loving. Or to put it another way, if we are not loving, it doesn't matter what we are. Followers of Jesus, giving money away, whatever, we are nothing. And so, my friends, that is the high bar that Jesus set for his disciples. It wasn't just a matter of being human in the most basic sense, but about being a new kind of human in the Jesus sense. And so my friends, I think it's appropriate for us to, to hear these words of Jesus in the context of what's going on in our nation and to apply it to our lives in just a few different ways. First of all, let's examine ourselves. To hear Jesus speaking these words, calling his disciples to love, not just any way, but in the way that he loved, it's necessary for us to ask the question, do I love in that way? Is that the inclination of my heart? Is that the instinct that drives me? Now, the reason I want to press this home for us, my friends, is because I know most of us think that we are loving people. I mean, most of us don't go around going, I'm, I'm just a mean old sucker. Most of us think that we're, we're nice and kind, and we're defining it in our own way or maybe defining it over against other ways. But if we were to stop and say, do I love 24-7, 
365 days of the year, do I love like Jesus loved? Agape love, unconditional, sacrificial, willing to lay down my life for others kind of love. Do I do that? Some of you know who Jonathan Edwards is. He was one of the leaders in early New England. And he, before he became a leader, at the age of 19, wrote a number of different resolutions that he wanted to have govern his life. And this is one. I wonder what you might think about this. He said this, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and in doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and if I had committed the same sins or had the same failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and miseries to God. I think probably most of us would want to say, Jonathan, buddy, lighten up. Don't be so hard on yourself. I mean, when you see other people doing bad stuff, don't use that as an opportunity to, to look inward. But I think Jonathan Edwards would say to us, look, there is great wisdom when we see out there people failing in the most basic human sense. To ask myself the question, in what ways am I prone to do that same thing? And I think if we can begin to understand that, there is a whole new realm of growth and a deeper working of God's grace that we are opened up to. You see, when we, when we see racism in this world, it is right to be disgusted with that. But could we stop and ask the question, is there racism within my own heart? Do I prejudge people on the basis of their skin color? Do I write people off because they look differently than me or speak differently from me or have a different body composition from me? And I think when we start asking ourselves questions like that, we start finding the answer is yes. Let me ask you this question. The thing that horrified so many of us this week when we saw it, the officer driving his knee into the neck of George Floyd. Are, are there times when you have wanted to do the same thing to someone? Or maybe you wouldn't do it literally, but, but are there times that you have wanted metaphorically to drive your neck into someone? that you were just so filled with disgust for someone, anger, that you wanted to use your power to make them pay? I'm asking the question. And I'm going to tell you, my friends, if I'm honest with myself, there are times in my life where I wished I could do the same. God and his, his grace have shown me some of the horrors in my own heart. And there have been times in my life where I have wanted to see other people hurt. I'll confess to you, my friends, that there are times when I've been driving and someone's cut me off, that there's something that rises in me that says, I wish their car would go off the road. I know that's horrible. There are inclinations in my heart that are not like Christ. And I, I want to see those and I want to hate those so that I can confess them before the Lord. I can beg for his grace to change me. So what our brother Jonathan Edwards is saying here is saying, look, whenever you see something going on in the world, let the first instinct within you be to say, where is that same inclination in my own heart? Or am I tempted to, to take matters into my own hands or to use people for my own benefit? You see, my friends, when we do so, I think we begin to understand what the Apostle Paul said at the end of his life. 
not the beginning of his life, but at the end of his life, after having walked with Jesus for a number of years, after having written half the New Testament, after having planted churches around the Roman Empire, he said, I am the chief of sinners. Now, I've shared this verse with some of you before, and I, and I said, we could probably follow Paul around for a long time and not see anything really obvious. But I think Paul's in touch with the inclinations of his own heart and how far they are from being where Jesus wants them to be. And so when we see other people failing in the most basic human sense, we need to ask ourselves the question, in what ways do I fail in that as well? Not just in the basic human sense, but what are the ways in which I fail in the basic Christ sense of loving other people as well? Because you see, my friends, the most seasoned follower of Jesus is still only in preschool, in Christ's lifelong school of embodying a new way of being human. The most holy saint, the most advanced disciple of Jesus is still in his trained diapers when it comes to loving other people the way that Jesus has loved us. And so my friends, let's examine ourselves afresh this day when this world is completely and utterly messed up. Let's ask ourselves what ways are our own hearts deceitful and completely and utterly messed up. But let's not stop there. <laughs> That's a good question to ask. And I think we can only ask that question if we know that there's much grace to be had. And so let us be transformed by the love of Christ. Greater love has no one demonstrated than this, that Jesus would be willing to lay down his life for people like you and me. The Apostle Paul, who I said a while ago, was an enemy of Jesus and probably stood there the day when Jesus' feet were nailed to that cross, would later have such a revelation of the grace and love of Jesus and be so transformed by it that he could never get over it. He wrote to Christians living in Galatia, these words, the son of God loved me, agaped me, and gave himself for me. Paul never recovered from that act of, of grace that Jesus gave to him, that display of love. And so my friends, God wants to so transform you and me that we love like Jesus loved. And I think the only way that we make any progress in this is by being constantly blown away by the love of God expressed to us in Jesus, preeminently in that moment when he laid down his life for us. No greater love has anyone known or experienced than that moment when Jesus hung on that cross and had the knee of Roman power leaning into his flesh as he slowly expired and gave up his life in the place of people like you and me. Ask this question. If there was one person who was so captivated by the love of God in Christ Jesus, why can't that be me? If there were one person alive today who is so utterly and completely transformed by such a great act of love by Jesus that you began to love like him, why can't that be you? Why can't that be me? You see, if, if God is wanting to transform us into people who love like Jesus, who display and embody a new way of being human in a completely messed up world, then we have to be transformed by the love of God in Christ. And so 
let's examine ourselves, my friends, and let's let's lean into this transforming love of God. And the last point of application I want to give to you is this. Let us long for the new world. We do live in a place and a time that makes us weary. The old hymn we sing at Christmas describes how long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. In that song, it embodies for those first people expecting the birth of the Savior, the hope that they had. And we can also, in a sense, use that same hymn to express that longing and desire for the new world that Jesus says is coming. The way the world is now, completely and utterly messed up, is not the way it will always be. Jesus will return and set this world to right. And even when we are long pressed by life's trials, and it seems like we can barely breathe sometimes, because the weight of this world's ugliness is pressing into us. Let us long for that new world, that new world of hope, where everything is is the embodiment of this love that Jesus spoke about. Referring one more time to Jonathan Edwards, he had this, this beautiful sermon that he gave one time called Heaven, a World of Love. And he talks about that, that world to come, that, that morning that will break one day. And he said, in the paradise of love, everything is filled with love and everything conspires to promote and kindle it and keep up its flame and nothing ever interrupts it. My friends, those inclinations we have for this world to be filled with love are meant to find its consummation in the new heavens and new earth where everything there conspires to promote and kindle love and keep its flame alive. And so my friends, imagine what would it be like if this entire world that is completely and utterly messed up abided by these words of Jesus? What if everyone's instinct was to love exactly how Jesus loved? Unconditionally, sacrificially. Wouldn't you agree that this world would then be a living paradise? Imagine just if if the followers of Jesus embodied this kind of love, where people looked in on communities of faith and said, wow, see how they love one another. There is something different. There is a new way of being human that these followers of Jesus embody. Can you imagine it? Let's imagine it, my friends, and let's long for it. And let's put into practice these words of Jesus by his grace, as we examine ourselves, as we are transformed by his love, and as we long for that day to come. So my friends, may you love one another as Jesus loved you, and may you embody Jesus' new way of being human.